Welcome to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmody, where it's all about health optimization, anti-aging, longevity, and being the very best you can be. Brought to you by lisatarmody.com. Well, hey everyone, and welcome to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have Dr. Daniel Weber to guest. Amazing discussion, quite a long one this week. Um, we went everywhere from philosophy to oncology uh, to artificial intelligence to botanicals. Um, it was a very, very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Daniel Weber is a prolific author, a lecturer, a clinician, and is constantly pushing the frontiers of science, metaphysics, and integrated medicine. He has a really intimate understanding of how the body works from a molecular level and right through to systems. Um, he is an expert in Chinese medicine, as well as Chinese herbal medicine, um, he, he, where he gained his PhD in. Um, he has an extreme amount of knowledge about uh, oncology. He's a visiting professor at Tianjin University in China um, and does a lot of research himself. Um, he's the author of, I don't even know how many books, half a dozen books, um, he's a world-renowned expert on botanical and integrative oncology um, and has also authored a number of articles as well as the books and databases on complementary oncology, sort of bridging the gap between Chinese medicine and Western uh, medicine. He also lectures at a number of universities in Australia as well as the USA, uh, including the University of New South Wales, the University of Technology in Sydney, Bastyr University and the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. Um, Stemming from his work in complementary cancer treatments, Daniel has authored four books on botanical oncology to help physicians better understand the central role that botanicals and their isolates play in the healing of cancer. We didn't get deep into the botanicals today. We'll leave that for part two, but he is an absolutely fascinating gentleman, and I do hope that you enjoy this episode. If you like it, please share it uh, with your colleagues, your friends, your family, uh, and also give us a rating and review if you can. Uh, we really appreciate that as well. And subscribe to us on both the YouTube channel as well as on our podcast on whatever platform that you use. And make sure you check out all the programs we do over at lisatarmity.com, anti-aging and longevity range, our hyperbaric oxygen therapy clinic, our epigenetics programs, DNA programs, health optimization programs, corporate wellness programs. We're busy. We're busy. <laughs> Come and see us over at lisatarmity.com. Right over to the show with Dr. Daniel Weber. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have the amazing Dr. Daniel Weber with me. Fantastic to have you, sir. Uh, it's a real privilege and an honor to be able to speak to you today. You're a luminary in this field with, uh, I mean, I'm going to do a separate intro because your list of achievements and books and uh, papers and things is just a mile long. Um, but just welcome to the show. And Thank you. I actually had to interrupt you because you were already sharing some absolute gold with us and I wanted my audience to hear. Uh, but Dr. Weber, can you just give us a little bit of a background to get us started on, on where you came from and what you do? Um, <laughs> That's a tough one, I'll isn't it? How to go? As long as you... you I was born to... in 1942 <laughs> in a small town in Minnesota. You know, uh, yeah. but we can go on from there, but... Uh, sure. I mean, you know, having lived this long, I have had an enormous, you know, that's the nice thing about being old 
is that there's this abundance of experience that's there that informs us of our lifelong folly. <laughs> exactly. And you were just mentioning, you know, the longer you live, the more experience you have and the more knowledge you have, the more you realize that as a culture, we've simplified things and we have a binary approach to things. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, what we gained, and I love history and philosophy, what we gained in the scientific revolution and in the age of enlightenment uh, in, you know, 16th century, 16th, 17th century, we have Descartes coming along and saying that we are subjective viewers of an objective reality. He immediately separated ourselves from the experience, and that separation from the sensual uh, then turned the body into sort of a uh, thing that carries around who we are, rather than we are the body. So what we gain from Descartes and and, uh, uh, Newton and, and people of that time was a capacity to begin to manipulate reality. Because if we can separate ourselves from the, from things, we can begin to manipulate them and we can take them apart. And that's the basis of, of the Western science. And it's given us an enormous, I mean, uh, somewhere I think you were writing about the increase in disease, but in actual fact, we now live in a generation that is so disease-free, it is unique in the history of humankind. Wow. So we have made amazing progress, but like anything, it always comes to its end. And there's the crises that we're now in. We have to leave that old deterministic uh, reductionist philosophy that, that if there is a problem, we can find an answer and it's linear. We have to give that holism is about the, well, one, it includes reductionism, but holism is about much more subjective and interpersonal and sensual. And reading a great book called uh, Becoming a body, you know, it's like we forget, and I think the the exact it's exacerbated by electronic media. Here we are talking to each other. I can see you, um, but you know, when you're in a room with somebody, you can smell them and you get the subtleties that yes. you can't get here. Yeah, and I think we are provoking a crisis by doing these things, but they are so good. It's I think time. I just went in a circle there. Yeah, but at the same time, they, they bring us advantages. Like I get to, to hang out with you here today online, you know, which would be much more difficult to me to fly over to Sydney and see. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you had to uh, sail over here in a, in a <laughs> sailboat like Greta. Um, look, I think uh, it is, you know, it is a good thing and we have to make a transition. And medicine is one of the most uh, – recalcitrant disciplines there are. Yeah. You know, physics transformed itself about a hundred years ago with Newton, sorry, with Einstein and theory of relativity and then Niels Bohr and quantum mechanics. That changed physics entirely. Newtonian physics is now a subset. Medicine hasn't done that. Yeah. We're still living in a very derivative environment. So to, you know, these are statistics. In the U.S., medicine is 18.5% of GDP. Wow. That is $12,000 per individual. That's man, 
woman, child, all humans. $12,000 a person it's a year. Amazing. Is that insane? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Australia is better. I, I don't know about New Zealand, but here it's about 8.5%, which is about the, the rate that it is in Europe. And when you have uh, medical systems like uh, the European and Australian New Zealand model of, of social medicine, that also makes it cheaper. Now, what we need to do is also make it flatter. Now, because of the laws, I can't sit down and talk to an oncologist about a patient we have in common. I, I think I have a good reputation amongst a number of oncologists. And when patients say they're seeing me, oncologists have, they've reported as saying, okay, yeah, you know, he's trustworthy. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the, the, I can't call the oncologist up and say, look, I think, uh, so and so is, you know, is, you know, I think we, the, the chemo, I think is coming to an end. And I think, look, if, let's try to look at, altering these factors. Yes, yeah. The, the oncologist can't listen even legally in Australia to what the patient reports. So if a uh, patient says, I'm seeing Daniel Weber, and he's doing, and the patient, and the guy says, okay, that's fine, good. Keep on doing it, but don't tell me. Yeah, but don't tell now, me. Because legally, if he is told that, it, it could be concurred that he is agreeing. Yeah, and this person, man or woman, could lose their license. So you could see that there is. We need to make it flatter. Yeah, my is ideal is that everybody who does medicine does an undergraduate degree in pre med or or human biology or whatever it is. We all have a science background, and then you can go on and become a medical doctor, and then you can become a specialist, or you can go in the other direction. You could do Chinese medicine, you could do naturopathy, homeopathy, but you, we all have the same scientific background. And then we could talk to each other, and so we could have a case meeting. This is my uh, fantasy, is that yep. we're sitting there together, the five or eight of us who are in the looking at this review of patients and we go through the files. Okay, what are you thinking? And what are you thinking? Oh, that looks like a good idea. I don't know about that. What about because you could see that would be, oh yeah, okay, let's and we could run through you know, 20 or 30 patients in probably a couple of hours. Yeah. And therefore they're getting actually help from five or eight or how many people are there. And of course it becomes then uh, less of a hierarchy and flatter, and yes. there would be resistance to that, as you yes. know. Yep, I do know. And, and, and I mean, I've sort of, by default, um, been in a desperate situation myself with family members, um, had to become the CEO of this company, if you like, that is yeah. trying to fight whatever the disease is, the, the, the cancer or, or and acting like a CEO, bringing in the experts and having a yeah. multidiscipline team. Yeah. And then I bring in all the data and then yes. I try to make the best decisions yeah. for my loved one. Yes, you know? yes. And, yeah. and this is, a, a, a you know, what, what is, is hard for me is I cannot get the oncologist to speak to the Dr. Weber or the Dr. Youth or the whoever I want to bring into the yeah. mix so that we get a really holistic view. And everybody's very, uh, some people, especially in the, in the, in the conventional medical, very much these are my marbles and I'm not sharing them. 
uh, or they're not allowed to, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. because they will get into trouble. And this approach is not open to to discovery and to being able to see, well, you've got an expert in Chinese medicine and herbs and botanicals and so on. How do we leverage that for this case? You know, something that is completely outside the realm of the normal oncologist's knowledge um, and very valuable. Yes. You know? Well, yes. And But one of the issues... Uh, sorry, did I interrupt you? No, no, go for it. Uh, I think one of the issues is that there have been some kind of cowboy moments in the history of complementary medicine, which we used to call alternative medicine. So, uh, you know, making outrageous claims or uh, universalizing something. So a, a practitioner did this and it worked and it's then they tended, you know, so... And we have language problems because we don't speak the same language. So I think we have alienated the medical profession at some times. Mm-hmm. These are not our enemies. We are all together in this. They are the major paradigm. So therefore, we have to speak their language. Mm-hmm. You know, this is so if I come along and talk and say to uh, uh, you know, uh, a patient, your liver chi, whatever that is, is blocked. And then they go to their doctor and say, oh, my acupuncturist told me I have liver problems. So it's like, it's a translation. We have to too. change yeah. our language so that medical doctors understand. And then we can read the same reports and the same pathology. And the patient knows we have a common understanding. Now, that isn't the doctors who are doing it. It's the medical system, which has become so overly commercialized mm-hmm. and protected, and the organizations that uh, sponsor these kind of activities, whether they are practitioner uh, uh, associations or pharmaceutical ones. I'm not against the pharmaceutical industry at all. There's brilliant things that have been done. However, if they run the show, then there's, it's like trying to run a race with one leg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of commercialization of a lot of the things, you know, the, 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 it is the major paradigm and the pharmaceuticals are the major players sponsoring this paradigm or behind this paradigm. And so yep. you, you have this difficulty. Well, we need the drugs. We need certain drugs for certain things for sure. Um, but it's not to the exclusion. Let's have an and approach rather than an or approach. Um, and, and, and you're a specialist in, in things like Chinese traditional medicine and you're a, you know, visiting professor at Tianjin. I don't know how to say the university's name properly. Um, That's and it. you have a, a huge history. Uh, of writing books on botanicals um, that are in the oncological world very, very important. And I use mm-hmm. a lot of these in my mum's case, for example, and, yeah. and and reading some of your research with them is has given me a bigger understanding as to why I'm putting them in, you know, into the into the mix. Um so so when did you make that shift? So as a as a medical professional when did you decide to go and look outside the square, so to speak? <laughs> I've always been outside the square. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, no, I come from a long line of uh, uh, neurodivergent, cognitively impaired uh, uh, generations. You know, it's like we're all sort of uh, 
I am, my mother, my children, you know, we're all sort of... Brilliant. You know, it, <laughs> that neurodivergency, that 10% of the population, we think differently. We think in terms of images and space. And most people, uh, the normative people, speak in sentences. Now, uh, and words, and so they think in words. And I think in spaces and images. Now, so I've never been normal. So I, my undergraduate degree was theater because it was the easiest thing I could do. <laughs> and I worked in the arts, uh, lighting design, television. I designed scenery. I worked at an opera company designing things and working with that. I built scenery and I, I was a, uh, I, uh, Lighting design, I was uh, lighting uh, on roadie for on the Festival Express with Janis Joplin and the band. Oh. It was dead. <laughs> you know, it was a great time in the 60s, and it was very creative. But I met a Japanese teacher at that point who began to tell me about things in a way that I hadn't heard before. And what I now understand is that Far Eastern people traditionally think differently. If you, coming back to our language, if I say the word sun, how do you know that is the object? Because we've learned to phonetically, S-U-N, sun, is that object. So S-U-N is an abstraction. Now, if you want to look at Chinese, what do you see? You see a character, a picture of the sun. Now. If you take a tree, we have a word for tree, T-R-E, we, that's a, now if you look at the Chinese letter, I mean, the character for tree, it looks like a tree. Now, if you put the tree in front of the sun, what do you have? No idea. East. East. It's, it, that's how traditional people think. They don't think in chunks, like syllables. They don't think an abstraction. Sun, S-U-N, is an abstraction. A picture is immediate. Mm -hmm. Now, they don't think that way in the Far East anymore anyway. I mean, it's all gone. They've lost that. But we need to go back to that kind of holistic way of thinking, which is non-deterministic. It's not deductive. It is inductive. And in the most extreme, it's, it is... Uh, Abductive, and that is the most rigorous kind of logic. But we need to have inductive logic, which means we make uh, intuitive leaps. We we understand the context of things. Yeah. When I was lecturing uh, yesterday in, in or Saturday in Melbourne, uh, we tend to look at a symptom, and then a diagnosis with the disease, and then quite linear in terms of this uh, 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 algorithm, then there is a treatment. Mm -hmm. Right. And that treatment works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then you go back to the diagnosis. But in holistic medicine, you're not just looking at the disease. You're looking at the disease in the context of 20 or 30 other factors. Yeah. For example, in breast cancer, women with breast cancer who have a supportive spouse do much better than a spouse who is freaked out themselves and overwhelmed and scared. Yep. 
So how can something as basic as cancer be altered by your social environment? Hugely. And when you begin to see and understand that we are physical beings, we're not abstractions. We're physical beings. When we feel ourselves as being, then we begin to think differently. And the and coming back to the thing about phonetics, it's easy to teach phonetics, and it's easy to test them. And they're doing that now. They're going back in the States to testing phonetics because you can get better results. You can't test profound understandings of the mystery of a word mm-hmm. in, in a test. Yep. What does tree evoke in you? Mm. Strength, a density, mystery, stability. So all the significance of words is lost when we begin to do this. And so for me, complementary medicine, long answer. So after the 60s and I had a a child, I figured, well, I can't do that anymore. I got to get a job. (laughs) So I started studying uh, oriental medicine, uh, what we call it, oriental medicine these days, or Far Eastern medicine, I don't consider myself a TCM practitioner because TCM is a Western concept. I don't think in any way. How Chinese medicine is taught in China is very different than how it is taught in Mm -hmm. the West. Mm -hmm. So share with us a little bit about what is the difference with Chinese medicine and what can we learn? And if we're going to have a bit of a discussion today, I'd love to dive into oncology and cancer and I've done quite a lot of interviews in, on, on the different approaches to cancer the metabolic side of cancer and mm-hmm. um, all of these things just interrupting the show to let you know about our patron community here and the podcast at pushing the limits we've been going for eight years and we really need your support to keep the show on air and free to everybody so that everyone gets this fantastic information uh, from all these great doctors scientists athletes business people from all around the world so we we would love you to come and join us. You get a lot of exclusive member benefits when you do, but really it's about supporting the show and keeping it on air. And for a coffee or two a month, that would be fantastic if you can come and join us. You can go to patron.lisatamati.com. That's patron.lisatamati.com and check it all out. Um, so, yeah, what is the... the, the the philosophy, of, if you like, of Chinese medicine, where does, the, uh, where does that sit? You know, well, like it's a bit of a hard Let's thing go to back ask. and say, what is medicine? Yeah. Medicine is the, um, it's, it's not curing disease. Medicine is reorienting the body so that it can continue to adapt. Allostasis mm-hmm. is a concept of, uh, uh, of being stable in a period of change, which is different than homeostasis. Allostasis is the capacity to manage stability in the time of change. And that is under a challenge. You know, we, people are not coping. No. So we need to change some of this kind of modeling. Now, medicine is whatever works that is repeatable. If I can do something and I get a result and I can write to my associate, Dr. Yu, or 
Barbara or Kevin, whatever it is, and say, look, I've been using this, for example, for example, um, in, in rheumatoid arthritis, there are actually two types. There's a yin type and a yang type. In Western biomedicine, we've actually found out that's to be true. And this is what I'm seeing in my research is that biomedical research is actually supporting the realities of holistic medicine. Yeah. It has an, it's, it's with the researchers. So we have a yin form of which is more heavy and dense and throbbing and uh, is aggravated by cold. And that is called M2, TH2, helper, T helper 2 variety. And the other one is more heat and inflamed and red and is aggravated by those things. And that's uh, uh, microphage 1, T helper 1. So we can measure T helper 1, T helper 2 cells, and therefore we can then apply Chinese medicine competently. The difficulty in the past is it's always very, very subjective. Pulse and tongue, but that's all they had 2,000 years ago. They didn't have lab results. Uh, a, a little segue here. We have a thing in Chinese medicine called Sanjiao, which is called the three uh, energy centers, which is the lower abdomen, middle abdomen, and the chest. Um, so we, in China, that is considered an organ, Sanjiao. Now, that's laughable. I mean, <laughs> there is no organ like that. However, if you understand physiology, that's the pathway of the vagal nerve. Yeah. Mm. And so what's happening, for example, when you're uh, panicking and anxious, your heart is beating and you feel uh, anxious. Mm. Now, that could happen from having a cup of coffee. What happens is that the vagal nerve is not calming the heart. So we have the vagal break in the heart. So again, when we understand these things in Western medicine, we can see how they translate into Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is incredibly scientific. It's just that its descriptions are need to be brought up to date. And you've done so brilliantly in translating a lot of that into the Western culture, the Western paradigm of medicine, and sort of building that bridge, being a bridge between the two, um, and even doing databases and things to help people understand the differences. Is, is Is that correct? Look, I think coming back to the to the larger strategic issue, we're in a cultural crisis. We are in a paradigm shift that I believe is as massive as the cultural shift that happened twelve thousand years ago at the end of the last ice age. Right. Before, at that time, people were mostly our hunter gatherers. Um, there were still Neanderthals and. Uh, uh, Davidis sons, uh, and they were our cousins, and they lived side by side with us. Uh, but humans, uh, Homo sapiens, at that point changed. We began agriculture. We began animal husbandry. We began to have cities. We began written language. We began to have hierarchies of social structure, emperors, armies. Because you could grow food, you had enough surplus to have an army. And then you had strong leaders. That shift from hunter-gatherer to civilized state 
is the equivalent we're going through now. It's yeah. that major, wow. much more than the scientific revolution, much more than the industrial revolution. Those were, this one is big because we're going to have to be different in ourselves. And then I refer to anything you can read by Steven Pinker. And uh, Enlightenment Now is one of the most brilliant books there is now on your library shelf. Mm. It tells you what we're going through, and it gives us pathways. That it's there in physics. You know, we talk about um, uh, Schrodinger's cat. You know the story about Schrodinger's yeah. cat in quantum mechanics. Uh, uh, Schrodinger came up with this concept that there's a cat. Those who don't know it, there's a cat in a box and it's sealed, and there's a, a jar. Uh, with some kind of poison gas in it, and there's a plunger. And this thing may break or it may not break. And so the question is, is the cat alive or dead without opening up and looking? Yep. And Schrodinger said, it's both. It's both alive and it's both dead. Now, that we need to understand. And you can't understand that from a three sorry, two-dimensional linear model. You have to begin in looking at it 3D, and that's what I do often with Chinese medicine. I turn it into three-dimensional objects so you can visualize it. Otherwise, it's just a list of words from an ancient culture, which nobody even reads anymore. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, part of this paradigm shift, I mean, getting off topic here, but, you know, AI is a part of my, my my thinking at the moment, you know, artificial intelligence is coming at us like a steam train or it's here already, actually. Um, you know, is that part of this big paradigm shift that we're going to be seeing? Um, well, look, how is it? it's, it's, it's well, I've gone off on a tangent, you know, if, haven't if I? If this <laughs> happens and it will, this, I mean, and AI is, is going to take over, it is going to be socially, so socially destructive. Somebody pointed out the other day, how many parts are in an average six-cylinder petrol engine? I mean, thousands of them that have to be manufactured and then assembled. You have a battery, it's a battery. There's no assembly. There's no service on it. What happens to the auto industry? How many hundreds of thousands of people are going to be unemployed? Yeah. Same thing with the, with the algorithm. You know, you get this thing going well enough. If you have a bachelor's degree or an undergraduate degree in some kind of programming or like stuff, it's gone. It's yep. happening in China already. Yep. Uh, there are so many 20, late 20, early 30 year old young men and women who've got a graduate degree and they're living in their parents' bedroom because there are no jobs. Yep. And we're going to hit that. What are we going to do socially? We have to take care of each other. We're going to have to have different social systems. I'm not going to call it socialism or anything like that, because those are old ways of seeing things. We need to have a, a society that is uh, talking to each other. But everything we're doing is taking us away from that, which means, and this is part of disease theory, is sometimes we have to push ourselves all the way to the edge before we realize how stupid we are. The difficulty with that is sometimes you push too a close to the edge and you fall off yeah. and you have a dark ages. Yep. Oh, you know, uh, 
However, when there's a dark age in one place, for example, in the eighth century, uh, India was the most dominant economic culture in the world. China was probably too. Uh, our ancestors and European ancestors, rather, were living in mud huts above our pigs who were living below us in the barn. Um, uh, the, the Islamic culture was massive and they preserved all of Western tradition. We threw it away. We threw away all of that Greek stuff. The Arabic people took it, translated and preserved it and gave it back to us when we were ready to have it like a terrible children. No, you can't have that until you behave yourself. So, but now we have a world culture. When this goes down, the whole thing goes down. Yeah. And we're talking about millions and millions and millions of people dying because there's chaos, because we're not communicating. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, we wake up and say, let's do something interesting and create a new world. And we alter the mean. Yeah, and that's where we're hoping. And, we, 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 you know, the question is, is the genie out of the box and can we put it back in and control <laughs> the genie? I don't know. I think it's probably out of the box at the moment. It is out it? of the box. Yep. And, and it's, it's exciting. It's exciting because, I mean, at the same time. I'm not going to see this thing eventuate. I'm too old. But my children will, and they will live in a different world. And that that's uh, you know, I, I I wish I would live long enough to see that because that could be amazing. Well, you Where, probably will because you know how to keep yourself well. <laughs> well, you know, when I was back in the 50s, uh, I grew up in the 40s and 50s. Back then, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, in 30 years, we're going to be working 25 hours a week. You know, and I remember in the early 60s at the university, you say, oh, look, you know, in another decade or two, we're not going to have to work. But notice how something tempted us away from happiness to greed and exploitation and power and uh, all these egoistic things. America is an uh, egocentric culture. China is an allocentric culture. They are at the extremes. Uh, those who don't know, allocentric means group-oriented. Egocentric is individual-oriented. So, you know, so, and they are at the extremes. But most of us in that bell curve live in the middle. And that's where we should be living. However, unfortunately, because of crises and people are frightened, they tend to gravitate to their extreme. And we need the dialogue to stop that. Absolutely, we need dialogue in every level of society and every problem. If we can have educated, open discussions, <laughs> that would be fantastic. Um, and and we are becoming more and more polarized, as as you know, especially in the last few years with what the world's been through. Um, and you know, scientific debate and open discussions and intellectual discussions without you're wrong you know, approaches and you're evil because you believe such and such. Um, that's not conducive to anything, I don't think, you know. We need to have open discussions and respect each well, other's point of view. Open discussions, real critical thinking, is dangerous to establish structures. If things are working for you, why do you want to change? 
Now, if they're working for the top 5% or the mm. top 20% of the population, you know, and it's not working for the bottom 80%, how do you stop the bottom 80% from attacking the top 20%? <laughs> yep. Because you convince the bottom 80% that it's not the top 20% of the problem, but rather some other enemy that they have, yep. either on the right or the left. So, you know, yep. it, 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 the culture is driving us to extremes because we're frightened and no one's standing up and talking critically. Now, I may say things when I teach that challenge people. And that's, I'm not a good teacher unless I challenge people's assumptions, unless I say this doesn't work. I, I remember sitting in, no names here, in, in a, a class in the U.S., in a PhD, this is a doctorate level class of a, and this, the teacher was a, a, a well-known TCM practitioner, written, written a number of books. It was at the level of a pretty average undergraduate course. I was shocked at how complicit it was in regard to, we've learned the code. Oh, yes, we, that's internal cold. Okay. What is internal cold? Oh, it's, uh, you know, no, that's, that's the symptoms. What is it? And there's the problem with Chinese medicine and a lot of medicine. We try to define the terms by their terms. What we have to do is find new ways of expressing that. That means you have to give up what you've had. And that scares people. So people don't want to give up what they have. They want to okay. keep it. And when you say things, we're going to have to all change all of that. It scares people. That's understandable. So we need to support people. And when I'm teaching, I'm trying to do that. You know, we have, here's a model, the next model. Here's where we're going to be going. We're going to go to this place where we're together. And one of the things I'm doing is starting a, a, a portal database called uncles.org, where we're putting for practitioners all of the research, all of the material, a forum, a place where people can talk to each other, ask questions, general questions, offer solutions, talk about their own treatments and things. We need that wow. kind of forum. Yes. We need the community. Yes. Yep. This is just absolutely incredible and actually can can we go and actually have a bit of a discussion around um you know oncology and cancer um because you've done a lot a lot a lot of work in this in this area um and it's something that you know um i work with a lot of people struggling with the current system and the current paradigm and um trying to i don't have a medical background i just share and get them under the right people coordinate you know Go and see Dr. Weber. Go and see <laughs> so-and-so for your yeah. uh, particular problem. And here's some research for you to, you know, do in, the, in this sort of approach um, in, in trying to help people just because they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed yes. with, you know, a, a dozen approaches. And then you've got your oncologist, local oncologist, who's saying, my way or the highway, usually. Yeah. And yeah. this is not conducive to um, the, 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 what I've found in, 
in my experience, this is just my experience in the medical system here locally, is that they're about 20 years behind the current research for starters, and that trying to shift the ship, the cruise ship, around takes a long, long time. And so, and even with the, with the rate of change that, that research is coming out at, no one person can be across it all. So to come from a place of arrogance that this is the only thing, this is what we've done forever, and this is what the only way forward, is really a, not a not a well, it's not a very good approach, you know. When you don't know everything that's out there for starters, sure. and that um, so just trying to get people access to the right research, the right information, and especially when you're up against it, you know. Um, so working in the in the oncology field. Where do you see like the, the standard oncology is radiation, chemo, immunotherapy, maybe surgery? That's pretty mm-hmm. much the tools that they have in their toolkit. Yeah. What do you th- say about the metabolic side of it, and then you know, getting into the herbs and the botanicals? Every uh, when I lecture practitioners, I say every patient is you have to start from zero, and you have to start that you don't know anything and you gather information. So I get all of the, the medical records um, and I spend, um, you know, sometimes an hour just having to go through all the, the history of that and what's going on. What are the pathology reports saying? Uh, and then when I then, so then I have a, a, a medical sense of what's going on. Um, and then when I do a consultation, you know, it's like Zoom or or uh, in person. The first question I ask is, "What do you want from me?" I want to make it personal. And people often say, "Well, you know, it's like uh, I have this. Uh, I've I've read the reports, but what do you want?" Now, because I want to support them, I don't want to tell them what to do. And if we, I can get to them what they want, then we're beginning to work as a team. Now, if they say, I don't want to have chemotherapy, I say, okay, you know, looking at that, I can understand that nobody wants chemotherapy. However, I might say that, you know, this is a, a stage one. Um, there may be some issues with sentinel nodes. Uh, Let's, let's, uh, you know, they're prescribing a lumpectomy. Okay. Let's do that. Uh, radiotherapy will probably follow, but let's see what happens and when they have the margin. So I, t- I do it one step at a time, but I also would say, for example, that women who have a similar kind of cancer at this stage who didn't have chemotherapy had a significant poor outcome. So my general sense is that chemo is a terrible thing to do, but if you do it, we can manage its side effects, and then you're going to get the best of both. Now, and I say that's your choice. You choose. I think you should do chemo if it's offered. It may not be. Look, if the margins are clear and your key 67 COX-2 ratios, all of those things are good, you know, you might say confidently, well, maybe I won't do the chemo, just do some local radiation to clean up anything like that. 
because there's no problem, there's not any auxiliary kinds of uh, uh, involvement of, of the nodes. So, look, I try to explain in a rational way what their choices are and then give them the support. That's when people make really good progress, when they feel they have some control of the outcome. Yeah, and they've been listened to as to what they need and want, and then you've been able, because you know the science and you know the research and the statistics and the things behind it, give them the best opportunity and Mm -hmm. then help them in the next step if they do decide or if they don't decide to do something like chemotherapy. Um, and, And there are ways to mitigate some of the damage with chemotherapy or radiation Oh, look, that's, we, we can, you know, one of the things, uh, I get so much, uh, there's so much research going on in China. Would you imagine, you know, that in the Chinese with their academic standards, they always want to do extremely well in the research now is world standard. I mean, really good research. And because their research is not based to a pharmaceutical outcome, that is, they're not looking to produce pharmaceutical drugs, they don't have to go through that kind of process wow. of double-blinding randomized-controlled trials, which, uh, let me make a segue here, that is not ever was intended by the people who designed this to be actually the way of d- judging things. Yep. Now, if you do a randomized-controlled trial, phase four trial, you're looking at men, white, between the ages of 30 and 45, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's your and, I, and that you know say I, it works for them. Yeah. What about the twenty-year-old Asian lady or the eighty-year-old Asian lady who's yeah, yeah you know X, people of color and all yeah. of those things. These are so it gives us general information. But in China, the research tends to be more like population studies. Here we have ten thousand people who did this as opposed to ten thousand who didn't. Now. They can do that because of their medical system and because of the size of the population. So that kind of gives me more confidence because it always opens up to alternative ways of seeing something. Now, it's not alternative medicine. It's alternative ways of applying it. So I come back to, I think I was talking earlier, if you measure the T-helper 1 T-helper 2 ratio, if you look at the difference between cell-mediated immunity and humoral immunity, if you look at the BACS BCL2 ratios, these are concepts which are embedded in Chinese medicine in a different language. Mm-hmm. My job is, as best I can, is to take the ancient language and turn it into something that is pertinent in biomedical language. Because if it's true... 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it's true now. Mm-hmm. We just have different tools. And for example, in China, ancient literature, they talked about cancer. They're only talking about stage three and four because they couldn't do it. They could never measure stage one. Mm-hmm. So we have to reconfigure the medicine and we need a Rosetta Stone. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, when you're approaching something like this, you know, from from a you know cancer point of view of, of oncology, what what is your take on the whole metabolic approach to cancer? You know, I've done a lot of interviews around the metabolic approach, um, and, and just trying to make people aware that it's not, you know, cancer. I've heard you say too in your lectures is twenty years in the making, or longer. Mm. 
it's not just arrived today yes. and um, it, it, it is it is caused by a dozen different things, yeah. toxins, viruses, stress, genetics, all in there. It's not just a genetic yeah. disease, yeah. which we tend to, you know, the, the somatic theory of cancer seems to be you've had you've got a genetic risk factor and therefore you're going to develop cancer or very likely to develop yeah. cancer. But it's a mix of these things. And that I heard in one of your lectures too, you said Every there is not just two hundred types of cancers. There's two hundred million types of cancers for all the number of people that have ever had cancer. Because mm-hmm. everybody is individual, and you look at them yeah. as an individual, and that really yes. struck home with me. It's not just you're a breast cancer with X Y Z type of breast cancer, and therefore I do this protocol. You look at the entire person as best you can with all the data that you have, and then make a personalized approach. And and this is a key difference than the protocol-based approach. And it's a lot more difficult and a lot more time-consuming, I imagine. It is more difficult. Um, And uh, we live in a a, a philosophical system in in the late phase of Western or world civilization now. And, you know, we all are looking for certainty. We want the right answer. We're trained from very young, you know. The Chinese now are learning pinyin before they learn how to read characters. The world is changing. It's becoming narrower and narrower and narrower. We're being forced into this, and many of us are saying, no, that's not the right way to go. What we need to do is go into the complexity and understand the complexity and understand that contradiction is natural and that not every problem has a solution. Then we begin to look at what we call the tumor microenvironment in cancer. Tumor microenvironment is what you're talking about. It's the metabolic state. How is the body proceeding? What's going on? And that is not just physical signs. It's also what we would call psychological signs. You know, the fact that we separate the soma from the psyche is, you know, really part of our culture, isn't it? From the West, you know, the separation. But... And if we look at from a far eastern point of view or for a holistic point of view, you know, the, the body-mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your hopes, you, your, all of this is a pulsating, complex organism. And what I want to do when I see a patient is to find out, okay, here we know what the why they're here. It's cancer. Okay, now so that's... But is that when I tr- begin to, is that the first thing I want to treat? Mm. Now, if in a Western place, you would say, oh, yeah, we got to treat that. Okay, look, okay, this person is, has this cancer, um, and they're frightened, they're freaked out, they're not sleeping. Um, okay, then I give them some lifestyle things. Okay, I need you to walk every morning. I want you to get up. I want you to do this. I want you to take some time to go sit by the beach. I know you're busy, but these are important things. So that's part of medicine as well. Oh, yeah. Am I being a psychotherapist, counselor? No, I'm helping the ground to be prepared so that the deeper work may be happening at a physical level. If your gut isn't working, you can't metabolize the herbs because it's paralyzed. The first place that 
herbal medicine and chemotherapy drugs is metabolized is in the large intestine by the microbiome. So we need to look at that. What is the microbiome? Is there a problem there? And if, and I treat that, then the chemotherapy symptoms are much, much more reduced. Anybody who does chemotherapy should be taking probiotics, you know, and <laughs> go to a practitioner to find out which, which ones you need because the ones the you taste. get from the yep. supermarket are not the ones, you know. No. So this is this approach that you're looking at the lifestyle because, you know, even with me, I get people presenting, I want this, I want the, the answer, give me the therapies. And part of that picture building is for me to, get the microbiome tested and get all these other tests done if I can and resources allow and look at the lifestyle. Uh, how, uh, how are you sleeping? How do I optimize your sleep? How yeah. do I uh, support your circadian rhythms? How do I get your stress reduced to a level that you can cope so that yeah. you can actually digest, so that you can actually sleep, so you can actually repair? Because yes. these are, And people are like, but this is, I, I want the, 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 the fix of the cancer, but this is, the where the cancer is coming This from. is the ground, the wholeness of their being. You know, we can't, you know, and and when you're frightened, you 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 want a quick answer. And I think this is where in the past uh, some of uh, the people in, in complementary medicine or what they call it as alternative did us harm by say, making claims that were not realizable or saying that this particular thing, and it was never backed up, but people then gravitate to simple answers. Yep. They want a quick fix. Yep. Give me the pill. Give me the one thing, you know, yeah. like with my, my story with my mum. And, you know, just to fill you in in the background, she had an aneurysm, massive brain damage wasn't meant to ever heal or have any quality of life. We got her back to full health again. And then um, nearly two years ago, she hit with a CNS lymphoma, a very aggressive form of that, and told there's nothing we can do. And she's 81 and, you know, get ready to die. And me not going, me going into this world of cancer and meeting amazing yeah. people like you uh, and, and, and helping her through that process. And now we're, you know, doing well, touch wood. And you never want to say you're healed because yeah. we're all producing yeah. cancer cells yeah. every day and we got to stay on top of it. And mm-hmm. we try to stay one step ahead. And this is why I love to put in the mix different ideas and different, like, wh- what do I do next? Um, but this, this approach that it's a very ho- holistic, multi pronged approach. Both with the aneurysm rehab and with the cancer, it's not a one thing. And people come to me and they're like, look at your mother go. She's amazing. I want to be like that. And I'm like, do you really? Because that was a hell of a lot of work. Are you prepared for the work? Are you prepared to put the effort in? Are you prepared to go all in? And I'm constantly surprised that people, even when they're up the wall, where they've got a terminal diagnosis, they're still not prepared to go all in. And they want um, the quick fix. What What did you do for her that saved her? Uh, yeah. It was this plus this plus this plus this and doing yeah. it for seven years. <laughs> yeah. Every single day. Yeah. yeah. Are you prepared for that? And then we could yeah. still fail. And then we could still fail. Yes. That is the other part of it because there is, as you said, there is not just, there's no, everybody's situation is, is mm. different and everyone has yeah. different genetics and different environments. Yeah. And so even if I did all of that for another person, we may not see the same results, you know, but are you ready for that ride, that adventure? You know, you know that combination of both 
objective, rational, scientific understanding, and also the trusting of the intuitive, the recognition of the complexity. You know, it has to begin with, first of all, finding a common ground. You know, this is real. You have cancer. And for patients to accept that, this is this is what's real. This is cancer. You know, not fighting it, accepting cancer. And then you begin to take apart the things that created it. Now, cancer, as you pointed out earlier, is very complex. So what's the most recent thing that we can deal with? Okay, I send it when I do a patient, I will have maybe oh, 50 or 60 different things I want tested in their blood, you know, growth factors and circulating tumor cells and inflammatory factors. And so I have, therefore, I have then a uh, objective, rational, scientific model. And then I match that according to an intuitive grasp of who they are. And I try to visualize then, what do I need to do that fits this together with that? Wow. So this doesn't have to move anymore. Mm. Can I stop this from growing? I'm not trying to cure anything. But if you can die with cancer, who cares? Yeah, if you died with it at 110. Yeah, but not of it. Not of it. <laughs> or of its consequences, because a lot yeah. of people die of the consequences of cancer. Well, look, most people who die of cancer die from metastases, except for lung and brain, I believe. And metastases can be stopped. So if you have cancer, for uh, there are things that stop that. You look at... Uh, uh, as I was mentioning before, Bax BCL2 ratio, there are ways of altering that ratio. There's ways of altering the uh, EMT, uh, epithelomesenchymal transition, EMT to MET. You can block that. So there are so many things you can uh, interfere with the serine levels, you know, which stop things from metastasizing. We have amazing tools. You know, and people say, how do you get such amazing results? I have no idea. I can't codify. I can't write it out. One, do this. Two, do that. I follow the patient. Yeah, and this is the brilliance of you. And this is where we need to, you know, like you cannot replace the years and years of research and knowledge and of different systems and you know, the traditional Chinese, the 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 Western medical, the the thousands of patients that this makes you mm-hmm. why it's you know special you know I don't want to a be superpower thank you I appreciate I, I know you mean it well but one of the things about our culture is that it's seductive <laughs> you're special you know you can have things we are so addicted to our cultural accomplishments, power, fame. Fame is the worst. Uh, you know, but power and money, you know, these things are so seductive. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, I'm so grateful. I've never achieved any kind of recognition until I'm too old that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Like if that. I had done this when I was 40, <laughs> I probably would have killed myself, <laughs> indulged myself. You, know, you have been too big an ego. <laughs> yeah, you know, ego. Uh. But, you know, I think 
aside from the humor, the I think I'm going to be living a long time and being productive because I am committed to not knowing. I am committed to being ignorant. Mm. I'm committed to taking everything I do from zero and learning what it is. And that capacity to adapt is what is recognized by research to promote longevity. People who can adapt to change live longer. Yep. And you have a curious, a curiosity, a constant learning. And, you know, you're not like, I went to medical school. I'm now a consultant or a specialist in X, Y, Z. I know everything. Approach. <laughs> Which but, but is yeah, there's a sclerosis, a sclerosis that goes on, but that's mostly the institution, yeah. not necessarily the doctors or the oncologists. I, I, you know, I mean, it is to a degree part of that because I've met quite human, compassionate, empathic uh, oncologists, but it would be very rare. And, and part of it is their job. It's you know, you're to- seeing 10, 12, 20 patients a day. And they're all in this sort of thing. You just like record, talk to the patient, record, write down a script, come in next appointment. Yep. You know, they don't have time for that. And I say to them, look, at least go to one of your patient's funeral. One. Yeah. Just go once. You just stand in the back, you know, and just recognize what you're doing. This is about life and death. Yep. You know, and then just maybe make it a little bit more human. Because it's 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 the system that causes this to occur. Yeah, and the, it's the like I, would, I was just, you know, it's like airports, for example, are not designed for people. They're designed for airlines and for the people the, for the industry. We don't design cities for people. The European cities are designed for people. You know, Sydney is not designed for people. It's just it's like. We forgot we're human. We yeah, forgot yeah. that we're just this bag of pus and bone and shit and blood. And, you know, all of that. That's, this is who we are. We're, and when you die and this body dies, you're dead. There is no immortal self. I'm not saying that there isn't something greater than this three-dimensional world we live in. Certainly there is. But I don't think we can comprehend it from this location. Yeah, I wish we could. <laughs> it's the big question. You know, so, you know, anybody who says I worked it out is lying. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep um, I keep hoping that uh, one day someone will work it out and be able to tell me from the other side. What, <laughs> what no, it's it your is. job to work it out. And I think you are from <laughs> all I know of your work. You are working it out and you go along. I keep I keep asking the questions, you know, and um, keep learning and just I love to sit at the feet of masters like yourself and just 
suck it all in and take something new out of this conversation that changes the way I think and look at things. Just interrupting the show to let you know about my longevity and anti-aging supplement range. I'd love you to go and check it out. Go to my website, lisatarmity.com and hit the shop button and you'll see a curated range of supplements, the latest in anti-aging, longevity, health optimization, performance optimization. I've gone out into the world, interviewed the most amazing doctors and scientists as you'll know if you follow the show, and gone and got some of the best products that are out there. Stuff that I give to my family, that's what's in my range. So go and check it out at lisatarmity.com. Um, and what I, I see, not in, just in the, the medical system, but even like, um, my husband's a firefighter, and the, 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 they, you know, he struggles because he's a very empath- empathic, compassionate human being. And so when Sorry, he goes, in, my husband, oh, he's yeah. a firefighter. And uh, oh, yeah, he, go- yeah. he goes into situations that are just devastating, you know, like people's yeah. worst moment of their life, they're, they're dying, they're losing loved ones, you know, these such situations. Yeah. And the coldness with which people operate and, and to a degree they have to operate because they otherwise can't function. Yeah. But I always say to him, never lose that compassion, never lose that 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 it really yeah. hits you, you sure. know, because that compassion is what makes you good. Yeah. You sure. know, and it's so easy to become, you know, like you 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 told the story there of the oncologist. They got 20 people a day, five days a week. How the hell are they keeping that compassion? And it is a massive burnout of compassion. And we need to go remember, we are humans first and foremost. And we have got to feel. Doctors uh, are under enormous pressure, and Mm -hmm. I'm very sympathetic. I mean, I would not, you know, I have a lot more freedom because I don't have those kind of restrictions as long as I keep my head down and don't say anything that scares people. Um, but one of the things I, I want to—I wrote this down the other day. What you cannot codify doesn't exist, and that's part of our Western culture. If you can't codify it, it doesn't exist. And to codify things, you need to understand them within the context of the culture. Therefore, we be, we lose this by our educational system, which is focusing increasingly on specialization. When I went to university, I didn't learn anything. I had no skill. But I learned critical thinking. I learned philosophy. I learned about sociology. I was in the arts and in literature. I did a, a undergraduate. Uh, so, uh, sorry, we do majors and minors. Mine, minor was in Scandinavian literature. Love the literature, the great darkness of the films, Ingmar Bergman and... Uh, Knut Hamsen, one of my favorite authors. You know, it's like life is rich, and as we grow and we learn, we become humble. And I think we need to stop. So stop trying to know things. Live in not knowing. And then existence is the only thing uh, existence is only what is codifiable for most people. But what if there is something outside your experience? Can you celebrate that? And that often for most people happens at a crisis level because we ignore it for so long. Mm. 
Mm. And therefore, part of my working with people is to train them to be aware of the changes that are going on within them. The body is, you know, a guitar is shaped like a guitar. Why is it shaped like that? Because the the resonation of different notes happens in different parts of that instrument. I mean, what brilliance there was in creating an instrument like that. And the body is the same way. It resonates. And we have these centers, though. The Indians call them chakras. We talk about these things. These are all metaphors, experiential metaphors, and we've lost the poetry of our lives. And I, you know, it's like, and the wonderment. Yeah. And we're all trying to solve problems um, in the wrong way. I think we're trying to solve them in, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, we're going we're gonna to save the environment and going to turn, you know, uh, five million people out of work, or we're going to uh, make some changes in, in uh, education. And you know, it's like, it's too complex. So we have to give up and surrender and trust and therefore talk to each other. And there's one of the issues. We're not talking to each other. And, and so the kind of work you're doing is really important. I, uh, you know, I celebrate that part of electronic media is yeah. that there are opportunities to reach people mm. that, you know, I, I can't do sitting in a hotel room talking to people. Yep. On the other hand, there is something much more uh, primordial in a room with people. Yeah. Uh, when I'm lecturing, I uh, I can, you know, because I was an actor, I can read an audience. Are they getting bored? You know, do I have to shift gears? Do I have to tell a little anecdote, a little story about my childhood and my mommy? And, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like there's you can't get that electronically because you can't read the audience. Yeah, and therefore, tend people tend to only get half the information, which is the, the observable part, but the invisible part. Yeah, is the missing. posture, the smell, the expression—that's not there. All that non-verbal stuff that yeah. you know, and, and but we have to use what we have, and yes. it does. You know, I am grateful for technology for the the opportunity it gives us to be able. To connect, you know, I would have struggled to come to Sydney and see you. And, you know, um, it does give us a chance to be able to sit at the yes. feet of masters and listen, yeah. you know, while you're doing other things and and to absorb yeah. a lot more content or a lot yeah. more, I don't want to even call it content, but a lot more wisdom, hopefully, and knowledge um, to keep you thinking, you know. It's certainly changed my you, you know, especially someone who hasn't had a traditional medical background, um, who's come at it from a completely, you know, weird perspective, really, you know, a perspective of. <laughs> I, <laughs> my somebody... best, best people are weird. I, I mean, truly, <laughs> you know, I, I really don't. I, I, I struggle all my life, you know, with not being normal. And I figured. <laughs> I'm normal. Everybody else is weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was talking to Dr. Elizabeth Harris, who's uh, who's coming on the show shortly, and she's brilliant, uh, uh, a doctor down in Dunedin, and she was saying, you know, we were talking about uh, EEG and uh, she studies brainwaves and neurofeedback and stuff, and she was like, you know, I've, I've got ADHD, and I'm, she said, that's your superpower. You know, that is your 
don't train that out of you. Learn to manipulate it a little bit better so that you don't destroy yourself. Yeah. But don't lose that because you lose your superpower, your ability to push yeah. through things. And you building know. on that, we could what because there is there is another uh, link in there in, in, for a psychiatric treatment. We're beginning more and more to recognize that SSRIs and NSRIs don't work. Mm. They work for maybe 30, 35% of the population, depending on neurochemistry and so forth. What we really need to be looking at is BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is that's more of the structure of the brain. And uh, psychedelic therapy uh, is where it's going to go. Even my psychiatrist, uh, I've been in therapy since I was 15, no, 16, sorry. Um, you know, constant questioning, who am I? What does this all mean? And he's yeah. also it says, you know, most of this doesn't work, but it, the future is in psychedelics. I did human therapy a couple of, uh, over wow. two years in the US. Yeah. And it, you look at the structure of your brain and there's no Uh, response of uh, thought or feeling. It's just, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. That's my mind. Interesting. Oh. So you do that for about an hour and a half, watching your mind, and there's parts that are down, the parts that are up, and you come out and you go, that's what my mind is. It's not what I think. Right. So... So does it allow you to be outside of I've had a friend going through ketamine and I'd love to be able to do it myself. I can't get it. But um, help you be outside of your own. Yeah. This this voice we have inside, what we feel, what we're thinking. Uh, uh, Julian Jaynes, um, he, uh, a psychologist from MIT, wrote a book in 1978 called... Uh, 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 the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. And basically what I take from what he wrote and and some of the people who've written about his work is that this thing is not native to our genetic being. It is a product of culturation, acculturation. And every time culture reaches a certain critical point, internal consciousness shifts. And therefore, I am not a native part of being. This I is a cultural manifestation. Yeah, yeah. It's not real. And that's the basis of Buddhism and and Taoism. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not our mind. We're not our thoughts. We're not. Who are we? Yeah, who are we? Are we? that seat of that consciousness. Yeah. And and, uh, did he say? (laughs) There's a book called uh, God is Nothingness, and I think this is one of the most profound books. So where did the universe come from? Yeah. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah, out of nothing. So so that's pretty hard to comprehend, but the author says nothingness is not the absence of something. Nothingness is is the potential to become something. So, nothingness is yang. It creates the universe, which is yin, because that's solid. The potential is chi. It's not a thing, but it is a desire to reach consciousness. 
The universe is based on developing awareness. And we are the descendants of that initial movement from nothingness to somethingness. I mean, it makes me feel good and things like that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and so just, you know, we're getting really deep philosophical here and making me really, really think and stretch my brain. <laughs> but, you know, like when, when you observe yourself, you know, so that metacognition, um, and I observe myself in different states when I'm grumpy, stressed or angry or, you know, having a moment meltdown. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> These are the good ones to study yourself when you're like, ooh. <laughs> um, and, and how much is that is biochemistry and hormones and, and stress and all of the hormone combinations. You know, as a menopausal woman, um, <laughs> I can really talk about those things because they feel them on a visceral level. Absolutely. And women are designed, and I don't think this is a sexist statement, but biologically women are designed in their nervous system to be empathic. Mm -hmm. uh, women have much larger corpus callosum, that is the mm -hmm. connection between the right and left hemisphere. The capacity to recognize feelings is much higher in women than in men. And this is a bell curve, and it's obviously different. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Because in a hunter-gatherer culture that women stayed in the village or in the community and did the gardening and raised children, and they had to be intuitive, and men went out and killed things. They didn't have to feel anything, uh, you know. And so our hippocampus, in terms of orientation, is larger than women's. Men uh, are much better at navigating space than women in general. However, um, now that we have GPS our major skill is now redundant. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need you anymore. <laughs> we don't, uh, yeah, that's, well, I think that's what men actually fear. I think that's what a lot of is going on is like, you know, women are scary to men. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, it, it, no, I think it is. I think there's something genetic in there or it, it's the fact that uh you know, the, we used to live in cultures where they had female gods. And I think we recognize the kind of natural superiority of women in some level, and it's scary. And at the same time, uh, heterosexual men are fascinated by women and delighted and attracted to them. But at the same time, oh, my God, I'm, this person could kill me. <laughs> ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。ディープサミネポーズ。
And are you willing to step off the edge into the unknown? Are you willing to surrender to the process? Now, when you do that, that's the essence of real medicine, bringing it all back to that. Plants are potentials. The medicines in plants are there because the plants are defending themselves against enemies. Those are secondary metabolites. Those secondary metabolites, humans, animals intuitively will go someplace and chew on some grass, but humans actually began to collect it, codify them, grow them, process things. This is our beauty. We are creative people. Let's not forget that. In all of this that we're going through, we are enormously sensually creative, and we need that there. Let's use the electronics. Let's use these ways of communicating. But if there's no heart, no passion, What's the point? you know, you're not going <laughs> to, you can die the richest person in your community. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't want to be Leon Musk for the world. <laughs> uh, no, no, maybe he's happy. I don't know. But, you know, we all make choices. Um, yeah. But part, some of the choices we make, like, the fact that he is the richest person in the world is not a choice I would like to make. No. We've allowed that to occur. Um, and anyway, going back into allocentric realities. So um, medicine. Medicine is discovering life as opposed to curing disease. If you can find out and go back and undo all of the things that were there, let go of old assumptions, both intellectually, emotionally, and also physically. What are the habitual things in diet? What are the habitual things in exercise? I had a brilliant Zen teacher in Japan, and he said, make your life difficult. Never, set, never settle for ease. Yes. He said it in a much more dramatic way. He said, yes. I was married, beautiful woman. My life was easy. I divorced her, married, ugly woman. No, my life difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he was speaking more metaphorically than real. Yes. Um, but, I, you know, I they, agree in with the it. Far East, yeah. the traditions are there that really are very much closely matched to what we understand in modern physics and in yeah. mathematics and concepts of, you know, this is all a time of flux and change. And when we surrender to that, our health is restored. Yeah, and we can, we can flow. And, I, and, you know, I think the philosophy of uh, the um, gentleman is probably we, we need to... <laughs> We need hermetic stresses. We need to put our body under load in order to be strong. We need to fast in order to have food. We need, you know, we need to exercise in order to stay strong and healthy. And it's always this contra, contra, contradiction, I want to say, is that, you know, you as an athlete, you're tearing your muscles down to make them stronger. 
you're fasting in order to upcycle and get you know yeah. get rid of senescent cells and to bring the new sure. stuff in. It's always this flux. If you have the perfect diet and lie in bed and you have an infusion of the perfect nutrients and the hundred percent oxygen, you're going to turn into soup. I think that was part of one of your quotes. I think um, you know that, that that we need movement. We need to be pushed. We need intellectual challenge. And I think in the societal discussion that we were having if we all lose our jobs well, where is the purpose for human humanity we have to replace that purpose some other place if we don't have a reason for being here and for contributing to society we'll be sick mentally ill yeah. and not happy you know um and you know i push my body and my mind to the mm. limit pretty much every day and then i try to rest and recover i probably don't get enough of that and too much of the other but it is this push and pull all of the time, yeah. and that keeps you young and strong and fit yeah. and able and agile and flexible. Yeah. If we make people comfortable and cozy on the couch and wrap them in blankets in a perfect environment and feed them too much carbohydrates and too much shitty food, they may be happy for half an hour. <laughs> well, no, I don't think they're happy. Um, it, uh, most of Western civilization depends on the continual use of drugs, mostly alcohol. Um, you know, uh, Alfred Lord Whitehead, an English philosopher, said, I think somewhere before the First World War, if it weren't for alcohol, Western civilization would have ended centuries ago. <laughs> you know, helped us cope. We use drugs to. <laughs> push through what we shouldn't be pushing through. Mm -hmm. And that drug is can be physical drugs like alcohol or other kinds of drugs, uh, or they can be electronics, or they can be anything that is addictive. Ambition, power, all of those things are addictions Running. because <laughs> we don't have to then face the uncertainty of existence, which is... Scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, I know myself when I stop and I actually stop and slow my brain down and sit in nature, you know, often the tears come then. Yeah. Often the emotion comes out then. Yeah. And my, my natural inclination is yeah. then to do something so that I stop that. And sometimes I try to actually just be in that <laughs> pain, you know, yeah. um, and let it yeah. out. Periodically. You know, I think that people misunderstand meditation. They do they do the form rather than what it really meditation is for destroying your mind. It is about going mad safely. Now we don't and, and monks would have an environment where they, they were out able to do that. Often they would be in isolation. I mean, courageous, the, the ones that I've worked with, courageous yeah. people, fearless, fearless. And I've always myself wanted to be fearless, but I want to do it within the reality of the culture, within the reality of relationships, within the reality of my community. Um, uh, I'm frightened a lot, but at the same time, I feel such excitement that there's something we can actually do to change this. And that is stronger than the fear. 
And I think we need to find those places of courage in all of ourselves, you know, and, and what you do. And then also to recognize that there will be an end to it. There'll be a point where you can't run anymore. There'll be a point where, so then you shift values. But if there is the core there of accepting this is all change, then you don't hang on to it. Yeah, I can <laughs> so resonate with that one, being a ex-professional ultra-endurance <laughs> athlete who ran too far yeah. and did too much damage to her body. And, you know, running for me was an escape from some of the mental struggles yeah. and it was um, proving and it was ego and it was it was a mixture of all of that and adventure and curiosity and yeah. amazing experiences and then having to end that part of your life as you move through and yeah. other things become priorities and so on. And and that struggle as that many athletes go through of who the yeah. heck am I if I'm not that? Yeah. Um, and then finding who I am again and finding, hmm, I yeah. actually can take a lot of that and place it over exactly. here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the wisdom comes from. I think, you know, have you ever seen that triangle that, uh, I'm sorry, I can't do that, that it looks at, uh, about 50% of what we're going through is data. Then about uh, 30% more is information. That's where data is put into categories. Then another small part is knowledge, where we can take that information into practical use. And at the top, 5 2% is wisdom, when to do it. This is a great joke. I always tell this. There's a big ship that can't get the turn, massive, you know, ship, can't get the engines, diesel engines to turn over. They're trying everything. So they get this guy who's uh, an expert. So he comes in and hears what the problem is and walks around and taps on pipes with little hammer and listens to things and does some switchings and things. He said, oh, okay, I know what it is. And he walks over to a large pipe, takes out a larger hammer and hits it. Bang, boom, the engine starts. And they go, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> say, oh, thank you. How much is that? He said, $1,000. He said, $1,000 for hitting a pipe? He said, no, no, that was a dollar. Knowing when and where to do it, that was 999 <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when people ask, you know, like when you're, uh, doing consulting and stuff and you're paying XYZ amount, you know, you're not paying for the five minutes or the 10 or the 15 or the hour. You're paying yeah. for that 30 years or that 20 years that whatever yeah. that person has and the culmination of their knowledge and the expertise and that's yeah. to be valued, you know, that's to be valued. And that's exactly, yeah, I love that. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Dr. Weber, I could just sit and talk to you for hours, but in interest of, of being respectful of your time, and um, uh, I've got to go and take mum training because <laughs> she's been I, sitting on the I couch really too long. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I, I'm a teacher. I enjoy the the capacity to communicate, and uh, you know, I think um, I, I, I'm generally confident that humans will survive. Uh, but as I tell, uh, I have a 16-year-old identical twin daughters, and uh, I'm <laughs> sure they'd be very embarrassed to say this, but they're both one of them is very severely ADHD. Yeah. And I just say, it's like, you're going to grow out of this. You know, it's like, you don't it's think like anyone else. And your <laughs> life's going to be difficult, but 
you have an advantage because you don't know anything. And it's a painful path, but it's where the creation is. The yep. darkness, creation only happens after you destroy. Wow, something. that is very, very profound. Oh, yeah, about- totally profound. You're going to write a book called Profound. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you've written many books. Um, well, you know, I get, I get it. I'm old and I'm white and I have a beard. And you're very, very wise, and I love listening to you, and I'd love to have you on again, and I'd love to learn more from you because it's not only – I mean, we could talk about, you know, the cancer and the botanicals, which we didn't get to really today, no. which I'd love to have gone into a deep dive with you as well, so maybe that'll have to be round two. Well, look, in future time, I would love to talk to you about BDNF, which is yes. brain-derived yep. neurotropic factor, as a way of looking at the, a lot of what we call psychological diseases – also, they're also neurodivergent conditions, and, and there's some real information in there, things that people can do. And what you were doing is probably the best therapy. Running is one of the best therapies there are for <laughs> mood disorders yep, because absolutely. <laughs> you're engaging the fundamentals of the organism. You know, what, when you're running, what are you thinking about? <laughs> Getting another breath. Getting yeah. that muscle to work. There's no room in there. I used to ride motorcycles. I still ride motorcycles. And there would be taking that corner at 120K. And you could not think about anything but exactly that line around the corner. It was meditation. Absolutely. Your mind is empty. Yep. yep. And that's what I really miss because I don't yeah. do the long, long distance. It was that cathartic part of it, that singular focus of not the emails, not the phone calls, not the hundred clients, not the taxes, not the everything, the dinner that's going to be cooked and mum needs this or that. It was yeah. solely getting myself to that finish line and it was hard and it was brutal, but it was a full yeah. occupation of the brain. And I had no, and you'd come through that cleansed in a way, naked, mm. absolutely buggered physically, mm. but emotionally sort of a cathartic experience. And it would yeah. change, and I've seen it change many, many people, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and people struggle after doing an ultramarathon often because they're in an altered state of mind for a couple of weeks yeah. often because their body has shifted and they've gone through this profound experience. They've dug deeper than they've ever done before perhaps and they've experienced pain yeah. like they've never experienced and yeah. they've pushed themselves and yes. they've experienced often a different culture and a different time and then they're put yeah. back in their normal world as if nothing's happened and there's a big storm. Well, no, but see, it is happening. You know, it's and, and, and what you did is that you found it the end of it probably in some way that was, you know, you'd need, you, you couldn't get any more out of it what you were doing and but what you're doing now is the same thing. Yeah. You're, yep. just, you're thinking that you're doing it. But right now, this is not you doing it. You're not doing this. You're I don't know, channeling it, if you like. You can use any kind of word. We're in a place. You and I are in a communication. There's a thing that's going on here that is alive. And this aliveness stops all of the background noise about I. And it's marvelous. <laughs> and that's the surrender. You know, it's just, so life then becomes the marathon. And it's a beautiful place when you, and this is why I love science, because when I'm upset, just, you know, distracted, you know, chaotic or whatever brain, when I go to the science and I learn and I study and I, I, I'm, I'm in 
this world and all of those other things melt away. And that is, I think, what I've replaced the running with. Yeah. <laughs> Excessive amounts of study. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Weir, I can't wait to talk again. It's going to be fantastic. Um, where can people find you? Uh, and can people, you know, reach out to you and, and um, connect with you in any way? And your um, companies, your Panaxia and, you know. Yeah, your- look, you, if you want to... Uh, as I said, putting a website together. Um, uh, info at panexia.com would be a great way um, because then uh, some of those things can be filtered. I'm, I'm just fearful of getting 500 emails. A- absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what but, I have to do you know, too. I'm, uh, um, and because you know, people will ask very specific questions and and. I feel, would feel obligated to try to answer that. Yeah. Uh, it's part of my own well. commitment. Yeah. But if I'm faced with 50 people wanting information, it'll be overwhelming. Yeah. But if there's general things that people want or would like to communicate, then I'm quite happy to do that. And, you're and still just put at the bottom, well. attention, Daniel. Yep. And yep. they will then pass them on to me. Yep. Now that's 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 fair enough. I mean, I've got the same problem. <laughs> I don't yeah. have the team to... Um, because you are obligated when someone writes to, to write back, and I think it's very important um, to to have those sort of systems set up. And are you still consulting at the moment, or are you? Yeah, I am. At the I, moment? I'm mostly seeing a few patients in uh, both in in Sydney, in person, and also uh, overseas. I have patients in the US. I'm, I'm going to be teaching a doctor program in the U.S. as well, so some mm-hmm. students who are working in this fashion. I'm teaching at Hope for Cancer. There's 35 wow. doctors there. We're doing research with them. So, uh, look, uh, I want to share what I do with people, so happy to do that. It doesn't become too you know, specific oh, or personal, you know. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Totally understand. Dr. Weber, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. It's been an absolute bore. <laughs> I just love <laughs> listening to people like you and just, just yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you'll put more lectures out on the web, get more lectures out so we can listen to this wisdom. Well, yes, we're going to, yeah. Also, you can go look at my website, danielweberpaintings.com. Oh, yes, 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 the creative side, the creative yeah, the- side. Yeah, I, I do an exhibit. I'm doing a I just did an exhibit in Sydney uh, in November, and now I'm doing one in South Africa in uh, June. So I love painting. Wow! And just uh, come back to it after the '60s when I did a lot of artwork. And uh, yeah, I, when do you, I, you know, sleep? I'm glad to be alive. When do you sleep? That's what I want to know. Sorry. When do you sleep? I sleep very well. <laughs> amazing! Amazing. Dr. Weber, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Okay, thank you. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review, and share with your friends. Head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatamati.com.